Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on this solo episode, I will be sharing the personal finance journey I have been on over the past few years. We all have interesting relationships with money, and I wanted to get really clear about mine very early. Especially as women, the more traditional and sexist stereotype is that you find a man who makes the money and is the breadwinner. And I just knew that was never going to be me because of my childhood, my personality, and my passions. And my ambitions, actually, for that matter. I'm going to start with an overview of personal finance that will sum up a bit of what you will read in in a lot of these books. And then I'm going to dive into my own experience and where I'm at today with my relationship with personal finance. So starting off more broad, what is personal finance? Personal finance, I think, are the personal decisions we make around how we make money and then how we choose to spend, save, or invest it. How is money made? Well, I think the most obvious way we all know of money being made is by one job, and that's what most people do to make money. That's tied to earned income. So they work a set amount of hours, whether that's, you know, a nine to five or it's more intense, let's say an eight to an eight, but they're basically putting in a certain amount of time and trading their time for money. I learned pretty early on, and this is one of the earliest things that you will also learn or you do already know from these personal finance books that there's actually three types of income. So this one that I'm referring to now is this first type called earned income. And earned income is how most people make their money. It's tying their time to their money. There's two other types of income though. So earned income is kind of like bottom of the totem pole, what most people do. The one above that is going to be called portfolio income. And that's basically any gains or dividends that you can receive from stocks or from your investments in the market. And so the the differentiator here between this one and the next one is, are you conducting business activity? So this, the answer for this one would be no. For portfolio income, you're not. You're basically just like parking your money into the market and any dividends you get or gains as it appreciates is going to be portfolio income. The third type of income is the one that you probably hear the most about is passive income. And you probably hear a lot of people say how real wealth is made through passive income. Some examples of this would be like rents. If you have real estate, the rent that people are paying you monthly, maybe it's royalties. Like let's say you were on the show Friends, best show ever, and you are Jennifer Aniston and they still play the show. You're probably getting a check in the mail every month, but you're not doing anything anymore. It's passive income. It's money showing up without you doing any additional work. A lot of people call this like money while you sleep. So it's the opposite of earned income, right? Because earned income is the money that's tied to the time you're putting in. If you're sleeping, you're not putting in time. 
And so, like I said, the difference between portfolio income, which is that second level, and passive income, which is that third level, is is a business activity attached. So a lot of the times, like with my real estate example, you are actually conducting business, right? You're investing in a property and you're making money off of that. So we hear this a lot, but wealth really is made through portfolio income and passive income. There are certain professions where you can make a lot of money from your earned income. Think like the top 1% musician, actor, sometimes like lawyer, business person. Like if you have a big payday, maybe, right? Maybe. But typically you can't work up your hourly rate enough for it to be true wealth. So like some lawyers, I think probably do charge like $1,000 an hour. Good for them. They might be able to just coast on their earned income. For most people, they're going to have to think about portfolio income and passive income. Okay, so that's how money is made. I've really oversimplified it. Oh, I should have also done this at the beginning, but like I am not a financial advisor at all. This is like me reflecting on my own experience as someone who got a business major in school, a master's in business in school, and who's worked in business. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, not a financial advisor. So take everything I say as like an individual who's experienced life, not as like some crazy expert. Probably should have said that at the beginning, but I'm saying it now. Okay, so I just went over how money is made. Next, I'm gonna talk about after money is made, where does it go? And I gave three examples in my personal finance definition. So it's gonna be you're spending the money, you're saving the money, or you're investing the money. And typically we do it in that order, right? We kind of like spend out, we pay our bills first, then we probably chunk aside what we need to save, and then we probably invest if we have leftover. So the spending part, like I said, is gonna be your monthly expenses. We all know it's the rent, it's the groceries, it's the stuff that, you know, it's the bills that we all don't avoid. Saving. So I think that this is something that I have felt very strongly about, especially as a young person who's seen friends get fired, friends lose jobs. I mean, we all saw early days of the recession. I had a lot of friends get laid off, even though they were amazing employees. And so from a saving standpoint, I always talk about emergency funds. If you have any leftover at the end of your month, you put it into an emergency fund. I think the rule of thumb here is six months of expenses is ideal. It's not always possible and that can take a long time to build up to, but I do think that is general best practices, which is what I'm going over now. And then the last bucket is investing. And so this would be this like portfolio or passive income bucket that I talked about. So when you make money, you either spend it on expenses, you can save in an emergency fund or maybe like a huge purchase you have or invest it and investing it in different types of portfolio or passive income. So now that we've gone over how money is made generally and how money is spent, saved or invested, I'm then going to talk a little bit about this like personal adjective in front of finance because I just went over kind of like basics finance, but this personal piece is I think what's really interesting because, and what a lot of people get wrong is that what you choose to spend your money on and save and invest is so, so personal. And I cannot stress that enough. I have friends asking me sometimes, what should I do? How should I spend this? How should I do that? I'm like, it's up to you. Like this is best practice. I can share what I've done. I do think it's very, very, very personal. Some people spend money on their family. They have to send money home to their family. Maybe they have to go visit their family. Some people, they just absolutely love clothes. And that's like their absolute happiest thing they could do is just going shopping and doing retail therapy. Like I don't, some people don't save at all. They just, every month they're like, I'm young. I want to do what I want. It's so personal. 
So I think the goal of this really is to like kind of share best practices and what I do, but like whatever you end up deciding or whatever you do has to work for you. It has to be something that you can actually stick to. So for me, what I do spend money on is I love a good coffee from a coffee shop. Like even if it's like five bucks, six bucks, for me, it like perks up my whole day and I love it. And I spend a lot of time at coffee shops working or reading or seeing friends. So for me, that is one way that I spend my money. I like to buy plane flights and travel to see friends and family. Again, that's another way that I spend my money. Some people, all their friends and family live in one city, so they don't need to do that. I also spend more than most on my apartment. And I do that because it's the perfect location. I also work remotely. So I really, for my own mental health, want space to move around and and work in different areas. So it makes me happy to spend on my apartment. Some people, they'd rather live with 100 roommates and spend nothing on their apartment because they're never there. What I don't spend money on, I would say, especially compared to my peers, is like going out. And oftentimes that's money on drinks, that's money on Ubers and Lyfts, that's money on restaurants. I typically don't do that. If I see friends and stuff, I'm usually not drinking. I'm driving my own car and I don't go extravagant with it. I like rarely spend that much money on food. I'll just like get what I want. And it's usually under 30 bucks total, if that. I also don't spend much money on my car. And that's one way that I save. I know people that their car is their pride and joy. They spend so much money. That's fine. For me, it gets me from point A to point B. I want cheap gas. And so I have a car that has great gas mileage. We all have different priorities. So I say that because it is so personal. And I want that to be one of the takeaways is like figure out what works for you. So you might be like, okay, well, how do I figure out what works for me? (laughs) Because everyone is so different. I would say the two things are learning these basic best practices, which I'm sharing now, and I'll share more resources throughout this chat, but also like educate yourself and decide what makes sense for you. Once you learn how generally things are done, let's say what the average median of the population is doing, don't let that education stop there. Keep listening to podcasts like keep testing things out, testing apps, testing your budgeting process, talking to friends. Like I would just say, continue to educate yourself and continue to refine your process. Like my process continues to change. And I think that's because I'm, I'm not scared of it. And I'm open to being educated and talking to people smarter than myself and adjusting how I think about things. Okay. So a couple other best practices that I wanted to throw in before I dive into my own experiences. I'm going to just put it into two buckets. One is budgeting and then one is like debt savings and investments, which is basically where money goes. So for the budgeting, I do think best practices are to do yearly and monthly budgeting at a minimum to understand how much you spend each month. Monthly might sound like a lot. I think it's really important. I don't think there's anything better that you could be doing for your future self than spending 30 minutes. Hopefully you can get a good process down to 30 minutes once a month to set yourself up well. I would also say a lot of the effort comes in the setting up part of it. So like this like initial budget setup and these like yearly reviews are more of the work. The monthly should just be maintenance. But I would say that is best practice is to do both yearly and monthly. I think budgeting will also make you more aware of what you're spending. And I'm sure there's some serious psychology behind this that I cannot quote now. But when you are aware of something, you are much less likely to overspend, overreact, overdo it because you're hyper aware and you know you'll have to report on it later. I know this is like a pretty common thing with like food tracking anecdotally and also scientifically that like if you are tracking what you're eating, how it makes you feel, how much of it, how little of it, if you have to report it to someone at the end of the day, 
you're just going to be more mindful because you know that someone's watching, whether it's you or, or another person, and you know that you're being held accountable. So I'd say I think budgeting more than anything is just good practice. Even if every month you're saying like, you know, made a thousand, spent a thousand, it's zero. Made a thousand, spent a thousand, it's zero. You'll just at least be more aware like, oh, wow, do I really want to buy this one thing? Because I know I'm going to have to not break even at the end of this month or whatever your, your rules are for yourself. When it comes to budgeting, there are also a few resources I would say I've heard good things about that I wanted to share. So the Mint app, I'm pretty sure, I think Intuit bought it. Not positive, but I do think Intuit did buy it. It's called Mint. And it basically hooks up to all your accounts and like auto categorizes things for you. If you don't want to set up your own system and you just want to download an app, I would say Mint is probably a good one to start with. If you do want to set up your own system, Google Sheets and Notion have a lot of really good templates. And they're literally just called like budgeting. But they'll give you like all the categories already bucketed out. Typically, it's color coordinated, which I think makes things more fun. And you can use that if you want to do a more like high touch, like kind of comb through it every month, put it in a spreadsheet in Google Docs or Notion. So yeah, I would say that's another option. And then one thing I will say I haven't used, but I've heard good things about is called YNAB. I think it stands for you need a budget. I think it's YNAB.com, something like that. If you type in YNAB on Google, people keep recommending to me. I intend on trying it out, but I have not yet, but I've heard good things. So those are a few resources if you're like really motivated to get started. I will say I use a combination of the Mint app and my own templates. Another budgeting best practice is very high level. Your income minus your expenses should be more than zero. And this might sound like duh, but I do think it's actually very, very important to just think about it in a really simple way. Like to know that your budgeting is going well, again, this is best practices. You should be not dipping into your savings every month. Even if you're saving just $50 a month or $100 a month, income say you make, like I said, a thousand bucks a month minus expenses. Let's say your expenses are 800 or 850 or 900. You really should have, try to have that number be income minus expenses greater than zero. One other income tip that this isn't totally a budgeting thing, but if you are feeling like you're on the border, like every month, you're just kind of cutting it close. We talk a lot about cutting expenses, which I think is really important and often the easier thing to do. And the more obvious thing to do, like, oh, every month I need to spend much less on clothes or every month I need to sp spend much less on restaurants. There's also like this idea of like just increasing your income, which I don't think we talk enough about. I will say one thing that does work really well is tutoring or consulting. You can make a lot of money if you do that for a few hours every week or a few hours every month. Let's say every month you're like just breaking even or you're like maybe 300 to $400 short. I would honestly figure out a subject you can tutor in or subject that you know a lot about that you can consult others on. And I would charge an amount to do that. It's obviously very flexible. It's typically pretty consistent. If you are doing tutoring, you'll be seeing the same people every month or every week. And I found that that's actually like a pretty high income way, or how should I phrase it? A pretty, just a pretty easy way to make more income. You got to figure out the thing that you're good at that people will pay for, but it's, it's pretty simple. You only need to do a few hours, usually a week or a month. Okay, the next budget of best practices is just debt savings and investments. I'll give kind of one thing on each. Debt, definitely paying off high interest debt first. Again, I know this is obvious, but that's obviously very important. If you haven't studied compounding interest, I recommend just typing that in on Google. If you do have high interest debt, you should be paying that off as quickly as you can. 
Again, talk to a financial advisor. I do think it's smart to have three months of an emergency fund at least before you're paying off more of the low interest debt, just because you never know what could happen. And if you don't have anyone to turn to, like you really should have a very small cushion. But again, it's personal finance for a reason. So you do what you think is best. My one tip for savings, yeah, building up the emergency fund. The tip that I don't think enough people talk about is high yield savings accounts. So for me right now, my emergency fund is just, it was actually, it used to be just sitting basically in a savings account in Bank of America. It wasn't making me any money. I think it was making like 0.001% or something like that. There are certain high yield savings accounts. Ally Bank, I know is a good one, where basically your money can just sit. There, The interest uh, multiplies and it can basically make more money by sitting than it does just in a regular checking account or a savings account. So I would say look into a high yield savings account just for your emergency fund. And Ally Bank, I think is just a really good one. They've been like increasing my interest and the interest in this sense is a really good thing because it's basically my emergency fund money is growing on itself. Like I think I make, you know, not too much, but like I make like maybe $5 a month or $8 a month versus $0 if it were just sitting in a regular checking or savings account. Okay, then the last thing on investments, I do think once you have debt figured out a little bit more and savings figured out a little bit more, I would say investments is the next bucket. And there's two main vehicles that people, that 20-somethings use. I would say Roth IRA and 401k are the two. The Roth IRA is really great if you make under 129k. It's kind of great if you make under 144k. And then if you make more than that, you kind of got to do loopholes and things. It doesn't work as well. But if you make under that 129k amount, you can put in up to $6,000. Basically, it's after-tax money that can grow and you will never be taxed on that money. There's like not many vehicles, I don't think of any, that allow you to basically never be taxed on the money that you put in. So I would say that if you are a 20-something that makes under 129K, and if you take anything away from this conversation, it would be open up a Roth IRA, and you can do that by going to your local bank and asking them how to do it or searching it up online, maxing out or putting in as much as you can. If you can't do all 6K, that's fine. Put in $1,000 and put that money into something in the market. Some people want to buy individual stocks and bonds. Some people want to buy index funds. I personally think index funds are the way to go because they are basically like a blended average of the best performers. So make sure if you do up a Roth IRA, you actually do invest that money into something in the Roth IRA. Think of it like it's the vehicle. So it's like, it's the place where it sits. You still have to invest that money into something else. But a lot of these people that work at these banks and stuff, smarter than, you know, than I am with this stuff. So you can ask them, but I would say that's like the biggest takeaway. And then the 401k is great when you have an employer because they often will actually match whatever you put in there. So I've actually never had an employer that had a 401k set up. So I've never had a 401k. I have plenty of friends that do, and it's amazing because I believe they will match typically like, I don't want to throw a number out there that's wrong, but like I think 5% of what you put in, something like that. And you can put in up to, I think, $19,500 into a 401k. So it's basically like if you put, if you max it out or you put in a lot, they can give you like an extra 1k, I think, or even more sometimes. I think it depends on the company. So, I mean, every person is different. Do your own research. Not everyone has 6K or 19.5K at the end of the year to put into one of these things, but 
even small chunks can go a long way. And I think especially the Roth IRA is really smart if you make under a certain amount and you want to grow tax-free. And the 401k is really great if your employer already has a program where they'll match it for you. It's basically like extra free money. Okay, so that's basically my business best practices, my finance best practices. I'm now going to dive just a little bit into like my own journey and my own experience. So hopefully this is valuable and interesting to you. And again, I'm not a financial advisor. This is just my own journey. So I guess childhood, I think a lot of our childhoods are help us inform how we think about money. For me, I grew up with a single mom who I've mentioned on here before. I was very blessed in that she had already achieved so much in her life. She was and she is a doctor. And so she made a great living, but all of the financial expenses and burden did fall on her. And I did see that from a young age. It's a lot of pressure to put on one person. And she didn't ask to be a single mom. You know, she didn't plan for it. She just kind of happened that way. And she had to support two kids on her own. And so I think what she really showed me was how important it is to be independent and make your own money, especially as a woman. I actually interviewed Laura Wasser last week, but I don't know when that episode is coming out in relation to this one. She's a really well-known celebrity divorce attorney. And she, one of the biggest takeaways she said was like, she sees divorces all day, every day, and how important it is for people to make their own money. And I completely agree with her, especially as women. It's essential that you have your own path to making money. And even if, you know, you end up getting married and you don't make money anymore, maintaining your skills, always knowing what you could do when you would do, I think is really, really, really important. The other thing that really shaped my childhood was seeing that my mom was able to make a stable living being a doctor, as well as other family members of mine. But nobody in my family did business. No one in my family was an entrepreneur. And so for me, I've always felt like entrepreneurship and business was this like unknown path. Like, could I make enough money to support myself and my kids? It always felt like this really big question mark because I didn't have any role models to look up to or or look after or give me advice. And I always wanted to give, you know, I do want to give my future kids the life that I had. And so I think for me, I've done a lot of work on calming my own fears and anxieties about not being able to support my family. And it's why I've worked as hard as I have to make my mark in the world of business and try to do things a little differently so that I don't have to worry about the financial outcomes of my family. I think one thing too about my childhood that maybe is a little unexpected, that's not necessarily about finance, but you know, my mom taught me independence and confidence through other avenues. And I think that's really helped me in my own financial independence journey from a young age. And I think this has to go do with kind of having a single mom, but also just having a mom that wanted us to be independent. I made my own food. I cleaned up the house. I managed my own schedule. We even like hired our own babysitters. We signed school forms. We did a lot of stuff on our own. And I was very confident in my own ability to make decisions from the time I was like seven or eight because my mom believed in me. And so I think that's one thing that is really, really key is I feel confident in my ability to make large decisions because she had the confidence in me. And even though I wasn't managing money as an eight-year-old, I was managing my schedule and our life and my school and our, my relationships. If I wanted to go to a birthday party, I wanted to get a gift. Like I got the gift. She also, as I got a little bit older and I was very blessed that when I was in high school, I didn't have to work a job. 
which I know is not the case for everyone. She did give me like a small allowance. And, and when I was in college, I did work, but I didn't have to work to pay for my rent. I, I worked to pay for other things. She gave us an allowance and that taught me budgeting as well. So I would also say like, that was something that really set me up for success. I know we have some parents that are listening. So sometimes I like to throw in like childhood things that I do think really helped. And again, I know super privileged to be able to experience that. But I do think that having that ability to budget at a young age did really help me. So now I'm going to chat a little bit. That's childhood stuff. Where I'm at today. So this is like my current headspace when it comes to personal finance. Budgeting, like I mentioned, yearly and monthly is really important. That's what I do. Every August, I forecast for the next year. And I figure out my high level financial goals. I get clear on what my monthly expenses are. What is my monthly savings rate? So what percentage of my income am I able to save or not spend? What is my overall net worth? And this may sound silly because we typically just refer to net worth for people with a lot of money, but I do think it's a great way to frame the money that you have because you have a few different accounts and your money isn't just what's coming in. It's how much you have saved. And then I look at how much that's going to change over the next year. So those are the questions I would say if you're looking for a place to start, what's my monthly expenses? What's my savings rate? So what percentage of my income am I able to not spend? What's my net worth? And then how does that all change over the next year? And for me, that looks like it's like 12 columns where everything's been like forecasted out. So that's my yearly, every August, monthly. So what I look at monthly is my income and my expenses for that month. Then I basically see, yeah, what was my savings rate? Did my, did my expenses hit that monthly target amount that I'm going for? And then I do this net worth calculation, which literally just means I take the amount of money in any of my accounts or any of like the estimated value of equity that I have or anything like that. And I just basically plop it into like one list. And for me, this is great because it shows me the changes in the market. It's actually really helpful because so sometimes I'll have like, let's say money I've invested in the stock market. That same amount of shares is worth usually less, most likely less than one year ago. I'm not sure the exact amounts, but obviously the the market hasn't been doing as hot recently. I own a little bit of cryptocurrency that also hasn't been doing as hot recently. So for me, that net worth is is less so about me worrying about like pennies and dimes and more so about me understanding like how are things changing with the markets. So I really like that. And then I have a number at the bottom that is like my motivator. It's called percent to fire which I will talk about in a second. But that's like my motivator to continue saving, continue investing and come back the next month and see where things landed. I'll talk about fire in a second. So bear with me. And then, yeah, one other thing on the budgeting note, I recently switched credit cards. So there's a lot of people have opinions about credit cards. Some people like them, some people don't. I think that if you're really smart with your money and you're careful with your money, I don't think that, I think it's okay to use them as long as you're paying everything off every month and you're, just in a good financial situation because credit card debt is not good. But one thing that I did recently is I switched a card that I was using. I'd had the same one forever. I felt like I was finally in a good spot financially where I could actually like pick my head up and look at what other options were. So that's another thing that I've been doing recently is just understanding my like credit card situation. So I mentioned FIRE. I'll quickly talk about what that is. I think that's maybe one of the most interesting things hopefully you'll learn from this podcast. So I mentioned I have this percent to fire metric at the bottom of my monthly expenses. Right now, that percentage is extremely low, but I'll tell you what that percentage means. So what is FIRE? FIRE is the Financial Independence Retire Early Movement. You may have heard of it. You maybe didn't. But retirement 
isn't a specific age. And I think that this is something that I never realized until I started doing my own research and going on my own journey. Retirement is not something that like you hit at 65 and you're like, okay, I guess I've done enough working, bye. That's not what retirement is. Retirement is actually an amount of money that you need to be able to not work anymore. So I'll just say that again. Retirement isn't an age, but an amount of money you need to not have to work anymore. And I think that's like a really, really important thing. That was kind of like a light bulb moment for me. So the idea is based on how the market's been going and how it's forecast to continue going, on average, you can live off of about 3% of your savings comfortably, spend that 3% annually because the interest, basically the amount that the market's going to keep going up and your money's going to grow in itself is going to way surpass that. I think the average is like 7% year over year. Some years it's lower, some years it's higher. But if you say 3%, you're like significantly less than what the average is. And so the idea is to calculate what that number is to basically be able to say, I've worked enough, I have enough savings that I can live off of my 3% of this amount of money. The way that you calculate that is you say, okay, you're going to start with what are your monthly expenses? Keep it simple. And this is also easy because of our budgeting example above. So let's say your monthly expenses are $3,000 a month. Then you have 12 months in a year. So 3,000 times 12 is $36,000. That's how much money you're spending every year. Now, what you're going to do is you're going to take your $36,000 in one year of expenses, divide it by your 3%, right, of what you're basically going to be pulling out of it every year. And that's going to be your $36,000 divided by 3% is going to be the amount you need to retire. That's the best way to calculate it. So you might say, I've, you know, my monthly expenses are $3,000 a month, but I know I'm going to have a family and kids one day. And so maybe I want to have $6,000 a month right, in my monthly expenses to feel comfortable. What you'll do is you'll say, okay, my monthly expenses are 6,000 times 12 months in a year is going to be $72,000 a year. So you need to be able to comfortably spend $72,000 a year with a family and kids. If you divide that by 3%, your number is $2.4 million. That might sound absolutely insane. You might be like, how could anyone have $2.4 million? And you know what? you might never get there. Like maybe it's never happens, but that is your magic number. And once you hit that number of $2.4 million, you can financially retire. Now I've, I've kind of gone above and be $6,000 per month for most people is way, way, way more than they need. A lot of families can live off of $3,000 a month or $4,000 a month, but I'm just giving kind of a dramatic example of $6,000 a month. And so my percent to fire number at the bottom of my my spreadsheet is basically how much do I have saved divided by what that number is for me. And I've defined what that number probably looks like for me as the number that I need to fully retire and not necessarily have to work again. I will obviously always work because that's me, but I will feel comfortable not knowing that I have enough. So I would say that's one thing that I would really recommend doing for me. It gave me a lot of control and understanding over my own financial situation and gave me something to look forward to. So I would say calculating your FIRE number and calculating the percentage you are to that every month can be a great motivator for you if you like numbers and goals and things to look forward to. Okay, next thing about where I'm at today. I mentioned the entrepreneurial career path and I will say one thing that it's tied to the the FIRE thing. I eventually want to not always work for someone else 
at some point in the future, I do want to be able to work on my own projects full time. I do want to be able to potentially even invest my money into my own thing that I'm starting. And so I think where I'm at today is I'm figuring out what that looks like as an entrepreneur. I don't have the traditional path of I'm going to work until I hit that fire number and then I'm done. I'm probably going to do some on and off of like working for someone else, then building my own thing, then maybe working for someone else, building my own thing. So I think that path looks a little bit different. I would also say as an entrepreneur, I'm probably a little bit more cautious of saving money because I know that one day I probably will want to start my own thing. So I have, I'm working to have more savings than probably the average person needs. I'm also, as an entrepreneur, probably going to have more streams of income than the average person because I have different business ideas and things that I'm trying to build, whether that's merch, podcasts, tutoring, consulting, whatever that might be. As an entrepreneur, typically you are trying multiple businesses. Another thing I wanted to talk about was vision boards and words of affirmation. For me, this has been really huge. So I've talked about my vision board before. I'm a big vision board person. For me, it's very motivating. I have, you can't see it right now, but I'm looking at it. I have a small cup with money, like pennies in it, and in a little seed, like plant tree thing coming out of it. It's one of probably 25 photos I have on there. So it's not my central purpose at all, but it is something that I want to happen. I want my relationship with money to flourish. I want to get more of it so that I can have more time. That's what a lot of my, my relationship with money looks like. I want more time. And that often comes with having more money. So I do have this, this image on my vision board. I will say that's helped a lot. Um, the other thing I will say is like another tip that's worked for me is words of affirmation is really huge for me. Basically, I just bucket my apps based on category. And for my money management one, it says I am rich, which I think I'm not there yet. I'm far from it, but it's a good affirmation for myself. Amazing. Where I'm going, I mean, I think it's a lot of what I've said, continue to save and be smart about my money. Investments, I'm continuing to figure out where I want to invest my money. I've been doing a little bit of real estate. What does that look like? How can I double down on that? I think the biggest thing for me is where I'm going is using money to buy myself more time. I think the best use of money is to basically, in my opinion, buy people's time to help me and to delegate what is not a good use of my time. Time is the most precious resource any of us have. And so I think where I see myself going is ideally, now I do a lot of stuff myself, but ideally I can accumulate more money and more people around me who want to help me to then basically continue to scale what I'm doing. But I think money for me is viewed as time and freedom. And like I said, continuing to educate myself. You know, there's always more to know. And I think that's something that I am continuously improving on is educating myself. And on that note, I do have a few recommended books and resources just to share before we wrap up. The first is going to be Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. He talks about those that three types of income that I mentioned above, as well as many other amazing topics. I think the book was written quite a while ago, but it's still very, very relevant. And I highly recommend. Quit Like a Millionaire is another book by Christy Shen that I really loved. She does an amazing job of talking about how her childhood has influenced where she is today and how a lot of this like American dream that we've been sold, like buy a big, big house behind a picket fence, isn't necessarily the right financial choice for everyone. And so I really, really liked that book, Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. He's an amazing, amazing 
thought leader in this space. He goes on a lot of podcasts. I would say if you're not a big reader, I would type in Morgan Housel. I think he was on Tim Ferriss recently, which was great. But yeah, it's just understanding our relationship with money. How does money grow and how can you have it work for you? So he does an amazing job in that book. Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. So this book is a little bit more about mindset, a little bit less so about like straight up like personal finance. But a lot of it is about like understanding cash flow and understanding how money can help you buy back time, which is something I just hinted at too. So I would say that The 4-Hour Workweek is another great book. There's also a lot of really great financial influencers on like Instagram and TikTok and different apps and things like that. I would just say throw them a follow and just like see what kinds of content they're putting out there and just continue to educate yourself. The biggest thing I would say, and I'm wrapping it up, is don't put this off. Don't put figuring out your financial situation off. Money really does compound and it's losing value if it just sits in your bank. So my challenge for you is to just take one hour over the next week and, you know, set aside time to really get clear on your financial situation. And maybe you feel like you're doing a good job but not a great job, but really take time to think about your relationship and do it now because, I mean, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear these like people ask about advice for 20-somethings, one of the biggest things they say is like, oh my God, I wish I figured out finances before then. I wish I knew how much money compounds, all the things. So I would say do that. Make your future self proud. It honestly just takes one hour. The stress of it often is way more than actually doing it and getting it all sorted. But yeah, hopefully this was a little bit helpful. You learned some quick tips. Again, I'm still figuring out my situation, but I've been on my own personal finance journey to get it all figured out. I hold myself accountable monthly and yearly, and you totally can too. So best of luck with it. And yeah, keep me posted on how your financial journey goes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.